Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. Have you ever felt a knife cut through human flesh and scrape the bone beneath? You're gonna need a bigger boat. Be my victim. Hello, my name is Austin Torres, and welcome to the Would You Die podcast, the show where we talk about our favorite horror monsters and villains. Today, I am joined by special effects makeup artist and film producer who has worked on films like They Wait in the Dark, Alchemy of the Spirit, and I Am Lisa. Please welcome my friend, Jake Jackson. Thanks for having me, Austin. (laughs) How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Doing pretty good. Fall, falls kicked in and uh don't know if that will date us when we air this but uh, it's been very nice here it's got that nice uh, fall chill about it which is getting me festive for the uh the, my holiday season which is between now and october 31st <laughs> yes and for everyone who's listening jake and i actually just met at horror hound in cincinnati so we are we were in line for doug jones and we we kind of became uh, instant monster buddies. <laughs> so um... yeah, it was it was it was one of those things where it was just, yeah <laughs> yeah I mean it was one of those serendipitous things. We just started talking. We had a long line to wait in, and then uh, yeah, we just started talking, and well, then here we are now. <laughs> exactly. Something I think is really cool is we were in line to meet um, Doug Jones, who is prolific for being under a bunch of special effects makeup and that is what you do Mm -hmm. yeah i I mean it was a big deal for me i've uh i know a lot of my makeup mentors over the years have worked with doug and talked very highly of him and and uh so it was kind of cool to be able to meet him there we were shown they wait in the dark at the horror hound film festival so i was like i'm going to take this opportunity and uh, go meet doug who i consider the modern day Lon Chaney, um, you know, the man of a thousand faces. Doug has played about every character you can think of from demons to to ghosts to uh, aliens to heroes to villains um, himself. He, you know, he's even done one of McDonald's mascots, I believe, in one of his first um, performative uh, uh, jobs. So it was it was it was kind of just it was very nice to just meet one of your heroes. And he was super sweet and super awesome. I showed him a picture of the makeup I did for They Wait in the Dark. And he said it was beautiful work, which, you know, um, really made me feel good because I'm always trying to make creatures and characters that are on the same level as um, the greats like uh, Rick Baker and Dick Smith. And uh, so it, it was, it meant a lot and it was just a great opportunity and um, great experience to meet Doug in person. Oh yeah, for sure. Because like, obviously we went over it, but I was in that same line and he was like the nicest person. Oh, totally. He, yeah, he was, he gave everybody time and he was goofy. He goofed around with you in the pictures and (laughs) yeah, he was just, he was a sweetheart. I mean, he was just everything that I had been told. He was exactly that. And, you know, it was one of those cases of, you know, they always say, don't meet your heroes. Well, this was definitely one of those that was like, yes, meet your heroes because he was uh, just a phenomenal person. And it was, it was really wonderful. I mean, you were in front of me. So uh, in the lines, you got to meet him first, but it was just, it was just one of those great experiences that I will always take, take with me, no matter where I go is just saying, that's the day that I met Doug Jones and just had a lot. It was, yeah, it was a great experience. So. Oh yeah. And, and same here. And it was funny because at some point he had to go, I think do his photo ops or something Mm -hmm. Yep. while we were in the line, but 
<laughs> that's how we became friends waiting yep. waiting for doug <laughs> yep yeah we had had a little bit of i don't know it was about 15 20 minutes it wasn't too long um no but yeah, it, it wasn't so, long at all <laughs> yeah, and it was so funny too because you could doug is like oh my god i'm sorry i'm sorry like he was walking away apologizing to everybody that he had to go do these photo ops it was it was very very uh heartwarming um that you know he was so like all about the fans that you know he was like i gotta go but i'll be right back i'll be right back he wanted to make sure everybody knew he was coming back and he'll be back as soon as possible but yeah it gave us an opportunity to talk and we we talked about your podcast and talked a little bit about my film work and and um what whatnot and then you asked me to be a part of this and i you know gladly accepted um <laughs> So I, I was very intrigued with your podcast and that you focus on monsters and villains and stuff like that, because, I mean, that's what I do. Yeah. And for those listening, today's topic is going to be just general monster discourse, just like all the monsters we can think of from like the ones that inspired us on the screen to the ones that are in our dreams. Like it's all monsters for the next hour or so. <laughs> Heck yeah. So the first question I want to ask, well, when I normally ask people is like, what is your earliest memories of like the horror genre? But I want to switch it up a little bit today. And because I'm assuming you were like me and you were a monster kid. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Still am. <laughs> fair, fair. Uh, so am I. <laughs> but um, I'm really interested to kind of know what are some of your earliest memories of monsters? The interesting thing is that my mother, who claims to not be a, a true monster kid, but was, a, in essence, a true monster kid, she had, in high school, in middle school and high school, she had, you know, collected horror stories, and I, I always remember she had this deck of overly sized playing cards, but on the playing cards were the universal monsters, and when I got older, I realized that some of them were actually the hammer uh, monsters, you know, like the oh, uh, cool. Oliver Reeves Wolfman, uh, werewolf from uh, Curse the Werewolf, and a few others, uh, Christopher Lee's Dracula. Um, so I saw those, and I, as a kid, you know, I was I was born in '80, so I, I grew up in the golden age of the the slasher, the golden age of the monster movies, uh, of the prosthetic monster movies. So it, it, they were always around. I mean, I can remember the zeitgeist of. Freddy Krueger and being like in third grade and everybody knew who Freddy Krueger was. Of course, none of us had seen it, but we knew <laughs> who Krueger was, yeah. um, you know, and, and I was just always intrigued by it, terrified, absolutely terrified of monsters terrified of the dark you know I, I was a very very frightened child but the more I got to reading about them or seeing stuff I I, I, be, I was also completely and utterly intrigued the um the, the concept the 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 idea of something not familiar the idea of uh, transformation of otherworldliness and I, I became more and more intrigued with it as I grew up and uh, but some of the biggest influences were um John Carpenter's Halloween I saw that way too young <laughs> uh, and it, it was by accident. My, my cousins were at my grandmother's and had rented it. And it was during the day. I can distinctly remember it during the day. And I was playing around, going inside, outside, whatever. And I'd, every once in a while, I'd come in and I'd just be like glued to it until it scared me. And then I'd run off. But it burnt into my head. Like I you know, remembered that. Some other things were when we go to my aunt's house, she had, she had HBO Cinemax Showtime and there would be constant rotations of, you know, the latest movies that they had on there and, and a few distinct images of films that at the time 
um, even up until about a couple, you know, about 10 years ago, I couldn't figure out what these movies were, but the, the imagery was burned into my, my, my psyche. And uh, the films were, uh, you know, after re- really, truly discover- <laughs> discovering them over the years, it was David Lynch's Dune, David Cronenberg's The Fly, Paul Verhoeven's Robocop, and there was one more, oh, uh, Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits. Oh, and, cool. and, and, and there were aspects of all these films that both just literally frightened frightened me to death but at the same time i was completely intrigued by the creations that that they contained um you know brundlefly or uh, baron harkonnen or you know robocop himself or the the image that stuck with me with time bandits was um early on in the film when the little people show up and the face of god or whatever shows up and they push the wall and this thing is cut this face is Float, floating after them down this hallway and it just terrified me terrified me beyond reason <laughs> uh, uh, and then the other one that was really really as at the early age really got me was jaws it, it mm. completely i mean as everybody i mean i don't think there is ever ever a person who saw it at a young age who wasn't some in way some way shape or form molded by that film it, it terrified me. I, I was scared of the water. Uh, we had a swimming pool. My grandmother had us take swimming lessons every summer. And for whatever reason, the swimming pool in the deep end had been painted a dark blue instead of a lighter blue as you know, typically is now. So it looked bottomless to me. It, it looked just like th- th- there was, you could not see the bottom. And to me, you could not see the bottom. So I was always terrified that the second I jumped off this diving board, that Jaws was in there and was going to get me. So I always make up some excuse like, hey, I got to go to the bathroom. And then I'd wait until the diving off the board session was done. And then I'd come back out. <laughs> um, so that the, those were the, the the formative years. The thing that really kind of changed my, I guess, my, my the course of my life, honestly, was um, the 1985 film Fright Night that Tom Holland directed. I didn't see it when it came out. I was you know four years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a few years later in middle school uh, at a friend's birthday party, I was the guy who could get movies rented. You know, oh, movies. nice. <laughs> I was a video store kid. You know, we, we went to the video stores. And so I was the guy that could get movies rented um, because my parents, as long as it didn't have a gratuitous amount of sex in it, they didn't care too much. Um, <laughs> so we went to the video store and since it was my friend's birthday, you know, he got to pick a movie and I was like, well, let's get this thing. So he had rented this movie called Terror Vision, which is on the cover. It looks like it'd be really scary, but it's more of a kind of a, a comedy spoof. Fun, you know, it's, it's funny. It's got it's a lot of humor to a lot of outrageous humor. Oh, cool. Um, and the other one was Fright Night. So we went to my friend's house. We, we watched the first one. We watched Terror Vision and we we're like, eh, whatever. The next day, you know, we were all tired by that point. But the next day during the day, and I, I always like to stress it is because horror movies in and of themselves are like they're, they're about the unknown. They're, they're, they're meant to trigger your, your primal fears. And in the daytime, you know, you're, you're not those fears are relinquished because you can see things. It's when the shadows come at night that we, we become terrified of, of the dark. So we watch we watch Fright Night during the day, broad daylight. And all three of us were terrified, absolutely terrified, you know, uh, of Jerry Dandridge. And I can still remember when Amy Uber, I call it the Uber Amy Peterson vampire, turns around with the big mouth, gaping mouth. And oh, my God, it, it blew my mind. And the film became so, so much a part of, <laughs> I became obsessed with it, but it became such a big part of my, my younger years that we were asked to do a writing assignment in middle school and we could write whatever we wanted to well i was obsessed with fright night so i wrote a novelization i mean I, it wasn't very long i mean I, you know i got the <laughs> basic plot across but it was the first time that i was like oh my god 
not only can I, you know, can I look at these monsters and and be intrigued by them, but I can also take it one step further and start writing them. Um, so I started writing and doing a bunch of stuff like that. But uh, vampires were kind of my first big monster that uh, that I think I kind of latched onto, and it was mainly because of Fright Night. Oh, that that's cool. I wanna I want to um, support a uh, claim you made a little earlier on saying how anyone who's seen Jaws at a young age was deeply affected by it. And I wanted to give you the fact that my family has this kind of tradition where we are shown Jaws when we are five years old. (laughs) (laughs) When Jaws came out, my mom was five years old and my grandpa wanted to go see it and didn't have anyone to go with. So we just took his five-year-old daughter to go see Jaws with him in the theater and he liked it so much that he ended up taking my grandma and then my mom a second time. <laughs> so when I was five years old, I was spared the theater <laughs> atmosphere, but I was shown Jaws at five years old. And that's been like, that's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a phenomenal film. And that was about two weeks before Horror Hound, they re-released it. Um, they converted it to 3D, which I'm usually very, very anti on because they don't do it right. But I, I you know, it was a uh, whatever National Cinema Day, so tickets were were cheap. So I took my mm-hmm. teenagers, who they know I love the movie. I mean, I think out of most, out of all the films that I love, I mean, there's a lot of films I love, but I still find Jaws to be almost the most perfect film in terms of, yeah. in terms of its story, in terms of it, its its pace, it, its emotional attach. It, it, it was just it's just great. But the 3D version of that just blew my mind. Yeah. Seeing it on the big screen, seeing it in 3D, and, and they really added so much depth to it that it was, to me, having seen it probably somewhere in the excess of, you know, 150, 200 times <laughs> in my lifetime, you know, it, it was it was an experience. But yeah, Jaws is one of those movies that taps into what most good horror films or good monsters do, and it taps into one of our most primal fears. And the reason that Jaws always is terrifying is because it's in the water. You don't know what's yeah. under there. It's the unknown. It's, it's, it's uh, the day, you know, I'd mentioned earlier daylight. It, it's the daylight version of the dark. You can be in broad daylight as, you know, it takes place during the summer, but you go in the water and there's shadows, there's darkness underneath of you and you don't know what's underneath there. So it, it added to that, that, that very primal sense of fear and the unknown. And, and that's why I think it's endured as many years as it has. Oh yeah. I also got to see it and it's re-release and I too was blown away by the 3D. I don't know something about Steven Spielberg. His, his movies are just able to be converted very well. I don't know if he's a part of it or it's just the way he. Oh, I'm, I'm sure he had everything. <laughs> yeah, but, I'm sure he had a hand in it. He, he, he's oh, pretty yeah. on the stuff, but, but yeah, it, it was, and it worked because the problem with 3D too is that most 3D movies, it doesn't work with dark. 3D light, light I, right. I was told that the light, so I mean, it's a summer movie. So yeah, you really got a lot of a lot of depth out of it. And what really struck me is the third act where you're on the ocean the whole time. Mm-hmm. And in the 3D, it just felt like the ocean. I, I mean, watching Jaws all my life, it always feels like the ocean is like this isolating like those three men are out there on their own against nature, but it just felt even more desolate 
Mm -hmm. I think is the word I'm looking for. Like the water keeps going and going. And I think that really adds to the the terror in Jaws. And and totally. And then, you know, like you said, the the idea that there's three men on a boat and you're like, okay, we hadn't seen the shark. You know, most people who grew up with her are like, yeah, the shark's big. But up until that point, like when we first see Jaws, when Brody first sees it and it popped out of the water and we realize just how big he is, that takes it to a new level. It's like, oh yeah, before it was three guys on a boat hunting a shark. Now it's three guys on a boat hunting a monster because yeah. this thing is huge. <laughs> it's bigger than the boat, which, you know, added to Roy Scheider's great, one of the greatest ad libs of all time is you're we're going to need a bigger boat. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it, it is. It's like, that is what terrify, what was terrifying about it. But um, yeah, but you know, that was a huge, huge influence. And as I mentioned, Fright Night and the intriguing nature of vampires yeah. uh, as a, as a horror, trope you know there, there's so much with them that um i think has kind of kind of gotten lost over the years uh i think twilight was a big part of it they mm-hmm. uh, made that they, they kind of took away their mystique i always found vampires to be as with most monsters is most monsters tend to have from the viewer's point of view as you watch it or even the creator's point of view is that they they represent something and vampires always represented you know, a couple of different things coming of age, which Twilight actually did well, but also that that a certain level of rep- repressed sexuality that that they are uninhibited by. I mean, you know, going back to Fright Night, the whole beginning of the movie is Amy is re- sexually repressed. She doesn't want to be intimate with Charlie. And by the end of the movie, like Jerry is that that image, that that entity of release. And, you know, she relents and becomes this this uninhibited creature and i think the thing that always gets me is that we say monsters i I try to use the word creature a lot because to me they are creatures monsters immediately implies that they're evil and i think a lot of things that we 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 watch that we've seen over the years uh you know that some of these things are not monsters they're just creatures i mean we go back to frankenstein you know Uh, yeah we call him frankenstein's monster but yeah he's really a victim yeah, I mean, he is. I mean, the thing that James Will did that was brilliant with his two entries in, in, in the field or in the in the series where he made the monster a symbol of society, you know, societal rejection. His creator rejects him. Then, then society rejects him. And from, you know, when you watch it and you look at it from a point of view, it's like he just wants to be left alone. He's just trying to find his place in the world. And society is constantly trying to destroy him because he just can't be because he's different. So right. I think I think that's another reason why uh, a lot of kids and people, we gravitate towards the monsters or the fantasy realm because the, these these creatures, these, these fantasy um, entities, you know, they, they tap into something that we wish we can, could have or, or, or we find a friend in them because, oh, look, they're, they're being ridiculed. You know, I'm bullied at school. Well, the Frankenstein monster was bullied by the townspeople. And I, I, I connect with that. And I am intrigued by the prospects of this character. And I think that's what, what always intrigued me about it, particularly Frankenstein, the vampire. And, and again, with vampires, I mean, I always go back to Jerry Dandridge. I always say he's the last great uh, truly seductive vampire uh, but after that it was you know i think the only one that came close and he was by m- by my account the best dracula was um gary oldman and uh coppola's dracula but they did kind of become more of just vicious 
murdering monsters. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely adore the Lost Boys, but the Lost Boys, the vampires and that, those things are monsters. And I'm thinking like recent film, I guess not recent because it's 2007, but uh, 30 Days of Night. Yeah. Like those are monsters. <laughs> exactly. And I love 30 Days of Night. I think that movie got a bum rap. Um, I think I was a big fan of the comics before it came out and they, I think they nailed, nailed the comic, but yeah, but there, there is that, that fine line, but you know, there is, there is even with like the Jerry Dandridge character, there is a sense mm -hmm. of melancholy about him. He's been, he's old. He, he, you know, he does what he does. I think there's even a point where he, he basically tells Charlie's like, just leave me alone leave me alone and I'll leave you alone and we'll be cool. You know, you don't have, we don't have to do this. And I think that always, that always got me is it he literally is. He's like, I can't help be what I am, but if you want to, if you want to keep pushing, I'll push back. And it was, you know, at, at the time I never thought of it like that, but as I got older and, and you know, read uh, Joseph Campbell, you know, hero, the hero of a thousand faces, uh, yeah, hero of a thousand faces and stuff like that philosophy and stuff like that. I really got into the, you know, the, the inner, the, the, why, why we're intrigued by the monster. And I think I told you when we met, you know, one of my favorite quote, and I'm again, might probably going to butcher this was something that uh, Guillermo del Toro said when he won for um, I think the golden globe for shape of water is that he, you know, to him, monsters are the patron saints of the misunderstood or our, our, our uh, the patron saints of our glorious imperfections. And I think that's why we are always intrigued by them or horrified by them sometimes, most times, even when they're good, there's still something repulsive about them, but we're also, we, we find a, a kinship with them. When Peter Jackson made his version of Kong, I think there was something to be said that he, he treated Kong differently than the previous two versions, which I both, I, you know, I absolutely adore the original film and i i actually really really enjoy um the 76 version i i agree like i i have a soft spot for king kong he cannot miss every version i dig <laughs> oh yeah yeah but i think what what got me about peter jackson's kong is he tapped into that element mm -hmm. that the other ones had not and the fact that kong really truly is the victim kong is just an innocent creature who does what he does you know, he's ripped from his homeland. He's forced to get on stage and be poked at and prodded and clapped at and laughed at. And then he escapes. And society's only ex only idea is like, we have to we have to kill it. You know, so I remember watching the movie. And the thing is, is as a fan of the films, you know, that he does that. Peter does that really beautiful thing where Andaro finds him and he's calms down and then they had this like kind of beautiful dance on the ice. Yes, I'm so and glad then, you bring this up. Yeah. And then after that, like, man, you know, here's the military and the shot that he did. It still gets me every time I watch it. it. You see him. He's got Anne in his arms. He's running over the rooftops and it just pans up and you see the Empire State Building. I freaking lost my crap. I knew what was going to happen. I knew before the movie, but the way he did it. <laughs> Was, yeah. was very emotional it's like i know where he's going and then that the, when they are up there him taking it to a, another level when anna's staring into kong's eyes as you see the the reflection in his eyes disappear as he as he passes away and then it just goes to silence as he falls off the mountain off the the building i was just that was to me one of the purest monster kid moments that i had seen from a director who i knew was a monster kid Oh, yeah, because he got the, the pure love and I guess the personality of Kong. Everything was right there. He wasn't a beast. He wasn't, you know, just there to kill these these dinosaurs. But he, he was this this creature, this wonderful, beautiful creature that 
had, was misunderstood in a society that knew nothing knew nothing better than to to just destroy it, you know. And and it had more resonance. I think the line "No, as beauty killed the beast" had more resonance in Jackson's version than the original one because you get it. And I, I just I just found that version of the film kind of captured. Um, I, I think what I always look at when I think of monsters. I love that, and I'm really glad you bring up the the ice skating scene because it's it's a tender moment of beauty in an otherwise like really intense well kink it's an epic i was gonna like it's a bunch of different genres mm-hmm. i guess it's action adventure but there's horror in it I, oh, yeah, obviously I there's romance but it's a really tender moment and i'm a little younger than you i was 10 years old when that film came out and my mom took me to go see it because 2005 was a very formative year for me for movie watching because I got um, Star Wars Episode 3, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds, and then Peter Jackson's King Kong. And all of those came out in the same year and left a very profound impact on 10-year-old Austin. But like like 10-year-old me is just like, yeah, my favorite parts when King Kong's fighting not one, not two, but three T-Rexes and, you know, 10-year-old shit. And now I'm like, my favorite part, now I'm a 28, 27-year-old. Uh, I turned 28 next week. But anyways, I'm a 27-year-old now. And I'm just like, my favorite part is, well, honestly, it's still the King Kong fights three T-Rexes. But right behind that <laughs> is King Kong ice skating because it's such a beautiful, beautiful yeah, moment. Absolutely. And I think the thing is, is like, with cinema in general, monsters in general, however, whatever it comes down to, I can't remember who said this, but it was always something that stuck with me is like, every time we watch a movie, we watch a different movie. Yeah. We we may be feeling something different. You know, we may may be experiencing something different or like in the case, I always, I was just talking to my, my friend, my director friend, he's got, he's same age as I am, but has children who are much younger. They're, they're like seven, eight years old. We were, we were talking about how, big of a difference watching pet cemetery was as a kid versus watching it after becoming a parent oh and how i can remember well is it probably about 2012 or something like that 2012 and my kids were all very little and i watched pet cemetery for the first time in years and i was like this movie i couldn't handle it i was like this is an entirely different film now this is this has changed how i view things because of you know, personal growth, personal experiences, and, and you kind of yeah. take away different things, you know, where, and I think that's a good, good, something to bring up when you talk about how, when you're a kid, you see things a certain way, but then you start appreciating stuff like, you know, going back to Jaws, it's like, I was terrified by the shark. Now I go back and I look at the, the societal situations and that Brody's trying to do the right thing, but society yeah. is keeping him from doing his job, you know, but I, I also want to kind of put a, a similar con, I wouldn't say a contrast, but a comparison, mm-hmm. the ice skating and Kong. And I don't know, I always thought this, but I don't know if Jackson was tapping into this. I mean, I, we all, anybody who knows Peter Jackson knows he's, a, a, you know, very big and he was a horror guy, fantasy guy. He, he loved that genre. Yeah. But I always found a certain level of connectivity between the ice skating dance with Andero and Kong and Carrie White's dance at the prom and, and Carrie. 
like there's this very beautiful thing oh, and it, yeah. he, does, he does a very similar jackson did a very similar thing you know whereas you have that oh my god we're taken out of it kong's running to empire state building we know what's going to happen very similar thing you have this very beautiful moment where you know they're dancing and this guy is literally it makes you question it's like is i think this dude's actually falling for carrie white and he's yeah. a genuine guy and there's just this beautiful thing about it. And then they go up to get on the stage and the music, you know, the, the music and the way the Palma does it and everything like that, you know, what's ha- going to happen. And I remember, yeah, I'd seen it many times, but there was a point uh, a couple of years ago, I watched it. And I was like, can they just, I, I was like, can they just leave Carrie alone? And I realized at that point, the power of that sequence in the same way as the power of that sequence in, in Kong was, it's like, it made me as a viewer go, can you just leave him alone? Again, Carrie is another character. You know, we, we hail, hail her as a, a, a monster, but she's not. She is a supernatural being, but she's also a supernatural being who is being harassed by the society around her. And at, at a moment of pure joy, pure happiness, it's completely ripped away from her and she's ridiculed yeah. for it. And that's it. She snaps. And, and I think that's the way I, I have grown to, to look at monsters in general, creatures in general. And as, as a writer and as a makeup artist, I'm, I'm always wondering on um, they wait in the dark. There's a, there's a supernatural entity in this. And I remember talking to the director. I was like, he had one idea for the design. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, let's look at it from the perspective of how she is and, and how, how what would this supernatural entity be and so on and so forth and we, we 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 got to a good you know good mutual agreement on the final look and uh, my idea was that she was she was a rageful entity you know there needed to be anger projected in in the makeup and and i think that's you always have to take that into account when you're when you're creating something as as a makeup artist as a storyteller and i think all the greats that do tell these stories they think of that too you know sometimes i don't think it's it's a, uh, it's more subconscious than conscious but there is a certain element of, of these things when you watch them you may not immediately but over time you go back and watch it and you're kind of you've, you've gained a level of sympathy for some of the actions of these characters Oh, yeah, for sure. In regards to your comparison of King Kong and Carrie, which I would have never made before this conversation. So I appreciate that connection. (laughs) I think it's brilliant. Those two sequences, like those are two films where every time I watch them, I hope for a different ending. I know film, the film's not going to (laughs) change, but you kind of hope it does, you know? Exactly. Yep. Yeah, that is Carrie White's one moment of happiness in that film. Her only one. And um, it's funny you bring up <laughs> Carrie because I just rewatched it recently for no other reason than I felt like watching it because it's a great film. It's a great movie. I mean, it's, 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 yeah, it's single handedly, not to digress and, and, and talk over you, but uh, that movie made Stephen King. Oh, yeah. He, he's very, very cognizant of that. Had De Palma's adaptation of Carrie not hit as big as it had, he probably wouldn't have had the career he had because it caused the book sales to go up. It caused, you know, caused him to people to visit his other books. And and so I just always thought that was intriguing that that was such a pivotal, you know, production for De Palma is a pivotal production for King in terms of his, his novels. And uh, it's just a great movie. It's just, it's just a wonderful, wonderful tale. And I think that's what we, we, we kind of miss out on horror films now is that we, we get sweet people have, and don't get me wrong. I think a 24 is probably the best doing what I consider horror is that mm-hmm. they they're, they're tapping into characters and people and, and thinking about the horrors that can ensnare them. And I think that's what all the older stuff did. It, it, you go back and look at it. Jaws isn't a movie about a killer shark. 
it's about a sheriff trying to trying to protect the community and there just happens to be a shark right Carrie is just about this awkward girl just trying to find her place in the world and happens to have supernatural powers you know so anyway i, I go back go back to what you were saying about carrie no i was just saying like i, I just love that you brought it up because I, like i said i just watched it recently it's also one of those films that i saw a bit too young like <laughs> six or seven oh, yeah man. and i distinctly remember the prom scene when I was like six or seven and it was way, way too much. <laughs> well, and, and De Palma, who was, was no, a known Hitchcock aficionado. I mean, some of his films borderlined on remakes. Um, <laughs> a lot of his uses of split screens and editing techniques and shots and stuff like that all added to the, the intensity leading up to the, the bucket of blood. And yeah, I mean, and the thing is though, is that, you know, we go, we jump to perspective, Carrie White's perspective, and there's only a few people laughing at her, but in her mind, her psyche is snapped and they're all laughing at her. And all she hears oh. is her. And it's that, at that point that she's completely gone. She's lost. And, and she's that's, literally that's seen red. Yep. And, and I love the juxtaposition yeah. of that where you cut to the crowd and there's only the ones that are trying to make people laugh and everybody else is just horrified at what's happened to her. And then it cuts to her perspective, her skewed perspective. And all she sees is everybody laughing at her. And her mom's voice going over and over in her head. And that's when she's like, I'm done. You all need to, <laughs> to die. And uh, have you ever read the book? No, I have not. Um, there... I've only read, a f I've seen a lot of Stephen King adaptations. I've only read Christine, It, and Revival. Well, the, the intrigue... I need to read a lot more. Carrie <laughs> yeah, is a quick read. It's very interesting and it's very different from the structure of how King would write everything else. But the thing that they didn't do in the movie any of the adaptations carrie doesn't just destroy the prom she goes and burns down the town she's just walking around town like just tearing it apart to, to show how much rage is behind her so i thought that was something intrig intriguing that always got me is it just wasn't it just wasn't the students you know right the it was the community case, yeah the whole community needed to to be punished for what they've done to her so again that goes into that societal like societal oppression of, of the of the character and yet we we look at a lot of these monsters and going, oh, well, this is what society, here's the status quo. She's not the status quo. And then when she can't handle the status quo, or if they push the, the the person or the character, the creature too far, then they fight back. And then they're the villain. And, and I think that's what always intrigued me about a lot of some of the best, best horror films, character-wise. I'm going to push the conversation towards, because we talked about at length vampires and King mm. Kong, but <laughs> thinking more about vampires, oh, and Frankenstein's monster, that's like two of the big three of the universal classics. I think it would be a sin with you being a special effects makeup artist if I don't ask you about werewolves. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> I Am Lisa is a werewolf movie. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, the female werewolf in it. The thing, is, I love werewolves. Werewolves intrigue me to no end. They're the ones that, you know, I love vampires. They're the ones I became obsessed with, but I became obsessed equally with werewolves for a different reason. And that was the idea of some sort of inner beast, our inner id 
yeah. manifesting and transforming us into a representation of our darkest part of ourselves. Going a little, veering off a little bit into to comic book world, which I'm not the biggest fan of comic book movies right now, but my favorite comic book Marvel comic book character is the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk, the real Incredible Hulk, where he was a rage monster. <laughs> um, uh, but the thing that always intrigued me about him was that he was he was built as an amalgamation of a couple different characters. It was Frankenstein, it was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and it was the Wolfman. And that was the fact that, you know, from the point of view, Banner is a mad scientist who accidentally creates something. It's his duality. You know, he's Banner and he's he's Hulk. He's Jekyll and Hyde. And then there's the physical transformation of the rage inside of him manifesting as the, the green beast. And I think that's what always got me about the um, werewolves is that transformation. And, and again, I grew up in the 80s. So, I mean, transformations were it. I mean, ever since yeah. from the time that, that Rick Baker did American Werewolf in London, everybody had to try to have a transition or a transformation in their movies. And, and the thing is, is that Rick's transformation in American Werewolf is still the gold standard. I think the only thing that comes close in terms of transformation manipulation um, is the fly. I mean, you can mm-hmm. put the thing in there, but the thing isn't really transformation per se. I mean, it is, but we don't go into heavy detail. But I think those are the three most influential of the 80s, uh, American Werewolf, um, The Fly, and The Thing. But um, again, and there, there, there are variations of, of, to me, the variations of transformation, the werewolves. But I, I just, I'm a, I, I love werewolves. I think that um, much like Hulk, much like other characters, they are that personification of something inside trying to come out of us and manifesting itself in a physical form. And, you know, the Larry Talbot's character in the Wolfman, he's a tragic character. He doesn't want to be the Wolfman. Um, something that the um, sequels, the universal sequels did that, that took that tragedy of, of Larry Talbot even further is that in the sequel, Frankenstein versus the Wolfman or meets the Wolfman, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. At the beginning of it, they take a silver shard out of Larry and he regenerates and comes back to life. And through the, 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 the Wolfman series, you find out he's immortal. He can't die. There's no way for him to die. He is destined to be this thing. The silver will stop him, but it won't destroy him. And so the latter films was him trying to figure out a way to cure himself, to stop it. And again, if you can't, if you don't think that that doesn't sound exactly like the Incredible Hulk, (laughs) you know, Banner was constantly trying to figure out a way to stop the Hulk from coming out. And um, I I just found, I I think that that character outside of the rest of them, like you look at Dracula, Dracula was fine with being a vampire. He didn't necessarily like it. I mean, I think Oldman did the best job of making him the tragic character that that he he could have he should could and should have been frankenstein was you know reluctant he it wasn't his fault but right. i found larry talbot or david kessler in, in american werewolf is these characters that were normal guys just doing normal things and then they get inflicted with this thing and you know they're they're wrought with the knowledge that they're this thing that they can't remember what they've done and they wake up the next morning and they realize that they've ripped people to shreds. And, and how do I stop myself? I mean, there's even there's a scene even in American Werewolf where, you know, David is like trying to get someone to shoot him and nobody will because he's just a guy. But he knows what he's going to turn into as soon as the sun goes down. So it, it, there is always that impending fear of are we are we as normal people are we going to again it wouldn't be you know physical manifestation or physical change but are we going to get angry and do something stupid are we going to you know get inebriated and do something stupid and there's always that 
duality of man, the wolf man, the werewolf always tap into. And another and, great one is Oliver Reed. I mean, yeah, he, he did a great job too. I, I would say like the great werewolf movies are, they're all tragedies, right? And Absolutely. that's what strikes me about werewolf movies and maybe in a dark, morbid way why I love them so much. Like a lot of horror movies are fun, you know, roller coasters, but there's always a sense of sadness with with all the great werewolf movies because to bring in like the howling mm-hmm. which is fun for the most part has some great gags but d wallace is trying to and spoiler alert for a 41 or yeah 41 year old movie d wallace at the end is trying to like warn people of what's coming and then she gets shot on live tv <laughs> Yeah. Well, not only that, but even with the howling, I mean, the whole story with her character is post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. Yeah. So there's 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 a lot of that going on. I mean, that whole movie is about, you know, kind of a psychological psychological uh, thing. You know, the the werewolves, there's the, the lead werewolf who's a doctor who's trying to get them to not be werewolves. And there's like a whole speech at the end where they're like, you can't stop what we are we can try, but it's, it's always going to, it's always going to manifest itself. And I think too, going, you know, with werewolves is that there's, there's, there's the tragedy aspect, but then there's also the aspect that those inflicted with werewolfism in these films are often as um, when they're in their human form are, you know, often invigorated, have more power, strength, they feel much happier. You know, it's like, it, it becomes a drug in a sense. Like, yeah, because uh, David he, Kessler in American yeah. Werewolf, yeah, like I he's mean, all horned up, <laughs> horned up, and also too, he's just excited. He's got so much energy. He yeah, even, I just I feel better than I ever have before. You know, exactly. Yeah, you know, so there 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 is this sense of um, I think the the transformation into the primal part of our our, our physicality or our ego or our it or whatever you want to call it, it feels good. Like these characters, in some way, deep down inside, are like, I don't mind this. But there's also a tragedy to it because they, you know, there, there, there is a, a level of duality going on with the characters, you know, themselves. David's cool with it. And then he realizes what he actually is. And he's like, oh, my God, that's why all this is happening. That's why I'm this way. He's like, I, I can't. I don't know if I can live with it. And of course, he has Jack Griffin Dunn's character. Dude, you're a werewolf. You're going to kill people. I'm just here to tell you this stuff so that you don't. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just there is something very intriguing. And I think, again, it's, there is something also in the terms of transformation, if you want to talk about when you first see stuff like that, werewolves mm-hmm. transforming and stuff like that, you know, we're all kids at one point in time and we all go through puberty and we all relate to that in some way, shape or form, because I mean, a werewolf turns into a rage, you know, at this beast. Well, when right. you're in puberty, I mean, your hair starts growing all over your place, all over the place. <laughs> you get freaking mad about everything. You can't control your emotions. And I think, I think that, I think that we all kind of in some way, shape or form, depending on when we watch werewolf movies, we, we, we find a level of connectivity with them because like, Oh, that's kind of how I am when I'm, you know, I've got three teenagers. Trust me. (laughs) There are days where I'm just like, Oh my God, this is not the child that I raised. Um, But, 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 but they are there. There's something about they encompass so much of what I think is intriguing about creatures is they're tragic. They're empowering. There's a transformation. They're very intriguing creatures. Oh, for sure. I'm interested in the idea of the bad monster Mm because there are certainly some, like I think Freddy Krueger is 
just a yeah. bad motherfucker. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, and I think the thing is, is that we when we came into the eighties, there was I think when we got into the slasher genre, that's when it started stopped being like I've never been a slasher. I mean, I watched them when I was a kid. That you couldn't help but watch them. I enjoyed them. But as I've gotten older, I've gotten further away from enjoying that stuff because i'm like it's mm-hmm. just it's just killers they kill for no reason you know or they kill for revenge and i was just like i'm more intrigued with the, these you know the monsters and going to and you know they're going back to a guillermo del toro movie i still i think the beginning the, the voiceover be- narration at the beginning of shape of water is probably the most poignant line is like you know this is a story of about a, about a princess and the monster that tried to tear tell tear her and her prince apart or something to that degree and then you realize it's like, no, the amphibious man is the prince and, you know, Michael Shannon's character is the monster. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and I just love, love that idea of that kind of thing of, of, of monsters. We, we see, we oftentimes see hu- uh, humans more monstrous than the creatures within these films or in society. I mean, you just do. But monster wise, like, yeah, the thing is, is that like, when John Carpenter made Halloween, he Michael Myers was the boogeyman, you know. Yeah, I think that's like what that's I, a monster. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I've loved about David Gordon's Green, David Gordon Green's trilogy. I'm I'm looking forward to Halloween Ends. Is that mm-hmm. they brought back that he's he's not he isn't really a thing. He, he literally is the shape. He is a yeah. manifestation of of evil, of of hatred, of whatever you want to call it. But I think with the the rip the countless ripoffs, which included Friday the Thirteenth, is probably the most successful of the ripoffs. And again, mm-hmm. it wasn't even in the first one technically. <laughs> but but the thing is, is that they they became about murderous driven things that just were there to kill. And, and usually, which was never in the intention with Halloween, but it became part of the thing. It's like if you have sex, you're gonna die right because it's sinful and i'm just like that's dumb and there's always the final girl who's the more virtuous one but uh i just yeah it's just like looking back on that it's like there there was there was nothing there i, I still don't quite understand people's pure unadulterated uh, <laughs> love for jason Voorhees, but yet it is um freddie was always intriguing to me now, granted, if we, we if you ever seen the, the you know or heard about Wes's original intention, yeah, Freddie was a piece of shit. Oh yeah, pure pure evil. I I absolutely absolutely thought the remake was the most horrid waste of time. However, there was a nugget in there that was the seed that was planted in that movie that had it had me intrigued um in the, the nightmare on elm street remake and that was did Freddie do it right and of course they did they, you know he had to be the bad guy and i was like but what kind of a movie would that have been had these vigilant parents gone and murdered an innocent man who was so filled with rage that he made a deal with the dream gods to go and murder the, the children of those who oppressed him or killed him? And I was like, no, that's an intriguing, intriguing take on the Freddy Krueger character. But they didn't do that. I mean, they laid some nuggets and I some I, there's a part of me, it feels like that was where they were going. And then somebody at the studio was like, nope, you can't do that. You've got to have him be a bad guy. We could have like, nuance in our slasher. Yeah, but I was just like, man, that would have been that would have been an interesting take take on uh, somebody who was, in its essence, true, pure and utterly, you know, purely and utterly evil uh, of somebody who was wronged, and you know, and so that was that was always something interesting to me about that character. Plus, Freddie, the the concept that Wes came up with with this demon that infiltrates your dreams and and utilizes your fears to kill you in your sleep. 
you know, that was the thing that Nancy figured out in the first movies is like, no, my fear is what's giving you your power. If I take that away, you're nothing. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and then the latter, the sequels and stuff got away from that until, you know, New Nightmare, which I thought had a, a beautiful concept behind it of, it was interesting that Wes took what he had created and said, what if there really is evil in this world? And this evil has decided that it wants to be Freddy Krueger. And the whole idea of that, it was just, it, it was, it was scream before scream. I always say that. <laughs> yeah. Like Wes made his meta horror movie before he made his meta horror film. Um, and I thought, and I do think I love scream, but I do think that Wes, uh, his new nightmare is a much better constructed film. But yeah, there, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, just lack of nuance of, of of horror monsters and creatures and stuff like that in the 80s where it was about you know body counts um i, I do think one of the the one that did um appear that is both kind of villainous but also it, it, you know the uh, david cronenberg's the fly i mean brundle fly it was an accident right you no know? and i do think there's a lot of sympathy towards the brundle fly too because mm. I, I feel like he does bad things but i don't i never really viewed him as an outright villain yeah well there's even a line in the movie where he's talking to gina davis and he's like you know i, I was a i was an insect that believed he was a man and liked it but now or uh, dream dreamed he was a man and liked it but now the dream is over and the insect is taking over yeah and i always thought that was such a profound you know in terms of you know monster stuff he was enjoying it for a bit but oh my god now the thing the thing that has given him this power is now but yeah yeah i, I mentioned earlier on i mean lost boys i mean you, you look at yeah. frightening and lost boys came out within the same period of time you know a few years apart Tom Holland's Fright Night takes more of the kind of classical approach to the vampires where there's like, hey, we just do this thing. We're old. We want to be left alone. We're going to kill. But that's just what we do. Joel Schumacher's, you know, Richard Donner produced it. Uh, their take on it was, you know, these guys love being vampires and they love killing people. In fact, they probably, you know, they've, they've got this town, whether they know it or not, know it or not, in a certain level of uh, uh, perpetual fear. And don't get me wrong, I, I love Lost Boys. I think that they kept this weird <laughs> demonic sexuality to, to the vampires in that, where you're like, oh my God, they're scary, but they're also so damn intriguing to look at. Whereas when you look at Fright Night, by contrast, Steve Johnson and, and the, the team that did those, they made them monsters when they laid yeah. out. But yeah, yeah, there, there was just, there was, and even too, it's like, I just always try to, I always find myself looking for some sort of sympathetic aspect of, of a creature, but I really do find that when we get into the realm of slasher films and stuff like that, that aspect is removed mm -hmm. because they're just, they're mindless killers. And I think that's why with, with creatures, you know, it's like, why are they, why are they doing this right. There's behind it? And in most of like the creature movies, it's a man-made reason why they're doing what they're doing um like what's coming to mind right now is jurassic park like mm -hmm. the velociraptors the tyrannosaurus rex yeah they're eating people they're just dinosaurs like yeah. man oh. brought them into the world <laughs> yep i mean i mean goldblum which is fun i always found it funny that goldblum you know says this he's like you know you know, basically you didn't even take the time to wonder if you should do this you just did it the the, the ethics of doing it um but yeah that that, that is it it's like the, the you know the dinosaurs and that um 
you know, there, there's, there's that level. And I'm, I'm really, for whatever reason, that's like, really, it just comes to the slasher genre that I feel like what we consider monsters kind of lose their, their luster of reasoning as to why they do things. Well, um, I did want to bring up one creature, which I think is a monster. Like it's, it's bad to be bad. I'm, I mean, there's a biological function, I guess, but I'm thinking of the xenomorph from Alien. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like that is a creature that just kills. That is its only f- function is to kill and make more xenomorphs. And I love that. <laughs> well, and the thing is, too, is that even, you know, I would even go so far as that. Yeah, that's what it does. But even going so far as what's the difference between the xenomorph and the velociraptor? You know, the, the xenomorph, the xenomorph is just doing what it does. Mankind should not have, you know, they, they should, you know, Ripley says at the beginning, you broke protocol. You brought this thing on here. This is your fault. This should never have happened. But uh, the thing that's intriguing to me about the alien movies, especially the first four, was that the first one to me is it's a haunted house movie in space. It's oh a, yeah it's a straight up horror film it's a haunted house film you know james like the cameron, pitch was jaws in space <laughs> yeah and and james cameron comes along and does what james cameron does which is makes everything somehow that man just makes everything cool i don't know why i'm i'm intrigued to see avatar um too i know uh, that i know that movie's getting a lot of hate because it's been like 12 years since the last yeah. one and no one's asking for avatar 2 all i'm gonna say is that man knows how to make a sequel yep and no one asked for a no one asked for another Top Gun yet. Here it is, killing it at the box office. So well, and the, yeah, and the thing is, though, is it you know it's kind of off topic, but the Top Gun thing. At what point in cinema we started hailing opening weekend as the epitome of a movie's success? Because Jaws didn't make all of its money that first weekend. It made it months of being in theaters and people seeing it over and over again. And, you know, and The Exorcist and it's Star Wars. Star Wars made its money over repeat viewings in the theaters. We haven't seen this kind of um, box office longevity since Avatar. Like Top right. Gun Maverick ha- is holding its own. It has been out for months and it is still being shown daily all day long. Yeah. And, and that is that just I mean, it's it's old school how it is or how movies is. But you look at the Marvel films, they're like, oh, it made one hundred and sixty three million this first weekend. And then it has a sixty five to 70 percent drop in box office next weekend because nobody goes and sees it again. And, and I think that's, you know, I, I digress into the world of film <laughs> producing, but it is intriguing to to, to see that. But yeah, um, uh, Cameron definitely knows what he's doing. I, I've never there's not one of his films. That I go, well, that was terrible. Uh, but but he you know he did have the, the the interesting concept of taking a horror movie and making it an action movie, which I think he did he did with his Terminator films too. The oh first, yeah, because yeah, yeah, first Terminator is a horror movie. It is a For horror sure. movie, and part two is an action movie. Same way with Aliens. Ridley Scott's Alien is a horror movie. James Cameron's Aliens is a action movie. I um, do appreciate that both of those sequels do retain their horror elements. Oh yeah, because there are great scares and both Terminator 2 and Aliens. Mm-hmm. I do think the Terminator franchise does lose its horror grounding in the later ones. Yeah, I uh, was, I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't care. I didn't like 3, Salvation, or I, Genesis was okay. It had interesting stuff. I love Dark Fate. I know a lot of people, are like, and I was like, the reason this movie didn't do well is because we had three sequels that nobody cared about and they made another one. But the thing was, is that, and this is, probably a controversial thought in certain circles, but the movies were never about John Connor. Movies were always about Sarah. Mm -hmm. 
right about sarah's journey and when they took sarah out of it it lost it it lost something in terminator dark fate there's a scene in it where sarah encounters the t-800 you know arnold for the first time 20 30 years after he killed john as a kid and uh, she, spoiler alert if you haven't yeah. seen it's, been a few, it's, a few, it's a few years if you haven't watched it now you're you, you met you, i don't think you're gonna see it if you haven't watched it by now to be honest but there's something that that they did they, they let um, linda hamilton have this moment where you know they stop her from attacking the terminator and then she goes and walks off pissed off and the new lead goes over and t- starts talking to her and she makes right she says something to the degree she's like i don't even remember what john looks like i never had any pictures taken of him because I was afraid mm-hmm. that they would be able to find him that way. And just the complete heartache that they added to that one little scene, little little throwaway scene with, with Sarah Connor, that she so loved her child that she would go out of her way to do anything she could to keep him safe, even though she ultimately failed. But that wasn't her fault. She thought it was over, and it was. But the future had sent so many of them that they were still coming, even though the future that they were being that had sent them didn't exist. It was just right. something I really, really liked. But anyway, yeah, getting back to xenomorphs, the xenomorphs, yeah, are perfect killing machine. I think uh, Ash, you know, Ian Holm, Ian Holm in the first one mentions that he's, he's the perfect organism. And, and I always found that intriguing. It, not to mention, not to mention that is probably one of the best creature designs of all time. Oh, yeah. Like it, Giger, it's my favorite Giger, monster. Yeah, yeah, Giger's design on that thing just even to, to this day still just intrigues the crap out of me. I really enjoy Giger's uh, artwork. It's very mechanical, uh, flesh yeah. it has flesh and mechanics, and it's just him being able to bring that together and mesh it into this this creature just you know it, it's it to me that was a lot of people are like oh well you know freddie jason michael myers the, these guys were the the modern day monsters equivalent to you know dracula frankenstein the wolfman and i was like i think the, the you know what's more along that lines is the xenomorph the predator you know stuff like that brundle yeah. fly those are kind of the characters that that i think are you know heir apparent to the original monsters but yeah the xenomorph just still intrigues me to this day um talking about terminator 2 here's a fun little anecdote okay so in alchemy of the spirit which is one of the films that i worked on that you mentioned at the beginning um mm-hmm. i worked with actor xander berkeley now xander is- oh shit yeah, Xander has been a film, you know, been an actor for decades, been in about everything, worked with about everybody. Um, all you have to do is go look at his IMD list and you'll see. But I got to work with Xander. Um, I absolutely loved working with him. Um, I was the makeup artist, hair, costumes and everything on this film. So I spent a great deal of time with him and his uh, our, his co-star and, and wife, um, Sarah Clark. Mm-hmm. But I got to hear all these great stories. And we, we were talking about... Um, you know, him working with Jim Cameron because he was the stepdad in Terminator 2. Yeah. And um, he was talking about his death scene and how <laughs> it, it was, it, there was a, a fight. James Cameron is known for his fiery um, uh, personality. Mm-hmm. And when Stan Winston had created the gag, they created the gag with the intention of him being against a wall, like, you know, pretty much flash up, flesh up against the wall. Well, when they got to the location, you know, if you go back and watch the movie, there's a countertop that goes out about a foot from the cabinets behind him. So they get there and, you know, they had to tell Jim is like the thing, the the headpiece that goes on Xander that sticks in the wall won't get to the wall because we didn't adjust for this tabletop. And Xander's like that did Cameron snapped. He was ruined my movie. 
screwed it all up, blah, blah, blah. And Xander's like, he's like, Jim, don't just, I can sit up on the counter a little bit if you're cool with that. Like the force of it, like pushed me back up against there and kind of made me jump. And he's like, you, you know, you're gonna have to sit there for hours. And he's like, yeah, I'm good with that. And that's, you know, that was Xander. Xander, you know, from working with him, just in that one film, he, he would do what he had to do. So if you go back and watch Terminator 2 and you see that shot, look, and you'll see Xander sitting up on the countertop a little bit. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> because it was the only way that they could get that back of that headpiece against the wall because it had about a six inch gap. But that was one, that was a great story. Anyway, you, you brought up Terminator 2 and I just, Xander telling that story just always intrigued me uh, as, as a fan of the Terminator films. And I, and I, Terminator 2 came out in my formative years. Like when that movie came <laughs> out, oh my God, it was, I was, I was 10 years old and Terminator 2 was it. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's a cool one. You were 10 years old when Terminator 2 came out. And then the next year or two years after you get Jurassic Park. Yep. Oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was an inter- it was very interesting because having come from, you know, growing up in the 80s and being, you know, younger kid. And I, and I saw, you know, all the creatures. I knew of them. I hadn't seen them all at that time. Right. But then I, I transitioned. And this, I think we can kind of wrap things up with this is the the idea of and this is going into my makeup world the, the idea of prosthetics versus prosthetic monsters and how they're portrayed in the films versus cgi monsters and the level of effectiveness um, because again I, I grew up in an era that was all practical but i also transitioned into the realm of okay now things are going to be used by cgi um, i will always say that jurassic park has and does and will always stand the test of time because Spielberg was very, very smart about what he used the CGI for. Right. And same way James Cam- James Cameron with Terminator 2. He was very smart with where he used CGI. The rest of the time, he used practical. But you, you take Jurassic Park and you put it up against any of the new ones, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, or Dominion, and they, they don't even compare. No. The movie that was made in 19, you know, well, 19, the early 90s, you know, released in 93, still looks better than those movie the new films why 90 percent of the dinosaurs they built <laughs> and as someone who is a huge jurassic world trilogy defender you're absolutely right <laughs> and getting into the the thing with cgi is that cgi there was a big the big you know big push oh this is the end of uh, practical effects you know it's all gonna be cgi now <clears throat> and the thing is, though, in the last 10 years, it's like, you know, CGI isn't all that. Perhaps we should learn to blend us together a lot more when we can't do right. it. Then we go to CGI, but we do things practically when we have to. And I, and I think that that move back to that is going back to how Spielberg did it when they kind of started the CGI revolution uh, um, in horror films is getting back to the thing. It's like, if, if we can build this thing, let's build it because an actor... Right on screen and when we watch it we can tell we can believe it yeah you know going back to jaws jaws looks goofy you know by most of today's standards but the damn thing was there they're interacting they're touching it it's 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 textured it's tactile it's there you know but then you do something like marvel stuff and it's like you know there's a shot in endgame where they all walk to the time machine deal and they all have those suits the white suits or whatever the time traveling suits they're all cgi The actors didn't even change the day clothes. It just CGI'd it on them. I was like, I just can't, I can't, as, a, as an artisan, I just can't fathom that. I agree. Cause like, I, I grew up with the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films where at least Tobey Maguire is wearing a suit. Yeah. And sure, they have their fair amount of CGI in them, but Sam Raimi also had his fair amount of 
practical effects too. Like they built the Doc Ock arms and yeah. the Green Doc Goblin yeah. armor. The Doc Ock, like, Doc Ock arms were practical. And, and Spider-Man No Way Home, like they can't even bother to give Tobey Maguire a suit because all of it's like CGI. And the thing is like, they made the suits. You see the the background pictures of the suits. Yep. Well, so the they made the suits, about, but. Yeah, the thing gets me about No Way Home is like the scene where Doc Ock attacks Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. None of that was real. The street right. wasn't real. The cars weren't real. None of that was real. The best conspiracy I can give you is a, is a good kind of nail in the coffin is I'm a huge fan of Jean Cocteau's um, Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Um, watched it i definitely suggest checking it out is made right after world war ii in france practical beast now that beast the way they the way they did the beast very crude but very effective jean marius was the, the actor and he played the princess or um, the the which would in today's standards would be the uh, gaston character but the thing was is that that design was heavily influenced on everything that came after i mean disney it, the animated film was very similar, but you take the Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast that was made in like 46, you know, right after the war, 46, it looks gorgeous. The film is beautiful, very innovative. It's all real. He is an actor in a suit. By comparison, you look at Disney's live act, live action in quotation remake of Beauty and the Beast and that beast design which was originally supposed to be practical. It was designed by Dave right. Elsie, who, who co-won the Academy Award with Dick Smith, uh, with uh, Brick Baker for The Wolfman. Beautiful mm-hmm. design. I've seen, seen they, had, they built suits. They built stunt double suits, all this stuff. And because Disney didn't want to pay and Dan Stevens didn't want to be put in prosthetics, they CGI'd it. That movie was instantaneously dated. You can watch that movie now and nothing about that design looks good. It looks cheap. It looks terrible. And like, I'm not a CGI hater by any means. I'm the type of person where it's like, it's a tool, but it's just so blatant that bad CGI is like bad practical. Like Mm -hmm. when you do it cheaply, it looks cheap. Well, and the thing is though, too, is like they, they, from the, from a producer's point of view, the thing is, is that bigger studios don't want to put the money in the front end to design things for real. They want to throw it at the end because, as it's well known right now, they're 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 very much not you know, VFX artists are not unionized. The studios are taking advantage of them, demanding right. crazy things of them, and we're getting you know crappy results. And don't get me wrong, like you said, you're not a CGI hater. Neither am I. When it's good, yeah. I mean, again, going back to Peter Jackson's Kong, I still think that thing looks great. You know, oh, I agree. Gollum, Gollum looks amazing. And the, you want to really talk about the, the crowning achievement of Weta? The, the new Planet of the Apes movies. Yes, the, the thank circus. you. <laughs> oh my God, War for the Planet of the yes. Apes. CGI on that is flawless. Yes, 100% agree. So, I mean... I will die on the hill that that movie was snubbed of an Oscar. Um, what? Ugh. 2017. Fucking Dunkirk beat it? I'm sorry. Dunkirk was not a good movie. I it like Christopher good. Nolan. Yeah, I like but... Dunkirk, but it, it, the Academy. I'm always, I'm always more irritated that Andy Serkis didn't get nominated for Best Actor, and that's something. Yes, I, that's you. something that I really, uh, really annoys me as as a as a guy who works closely with actors to be create, you know, being the stuff. I was like, there's no difference between them being in makeup and not being in makeup, being in a CGI suit and not being in a CGI suit. The performance is theirs. You know, that, right. that was the reason. Well, that's not Andy's performance. I was like, the hell it isn't. Every mannerism you take, they, you know, they had the taking away the VFX. And I was like, every mannerism he had without the VFX on top of it was Andy. 
So how yeah. can you not give this man? He's he's deserved an Academy Award nom at least a nomination since Gollum. Oh yeah. But, but every time he, yeah, I mean Gollum and definitely for Caesar. I mean, I thought his Caesar. I I was very like, oh god, they're, no, they're rebooting it because I was privy to, <laughs> I was privy to, I was privy to the the Tim Burton reboot remake when I was in my early twenties. And mm-hmm. though I, I will contend that the the set de- the uh, production design is great, Rick's makeups were amazing, and um, Danny Elfman's score was fantastic. That movie just did not work. So I was reluctant when when they announced that they were going to kind of prequelize Planet of the Apes. The first one, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, is not the greatest in the world. Matt it's a Reeves, when good they movie. In, oh, it's good. Don't get me wrong. I love yeah. it. But, but but by comparison to Dawn and War, oh, oh, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't even come close. But you know, Matt, I mean, Matt Reeves has proven over and over again the dude's a, a, just a brilliant director and a brilliant craftsman in terms of telling a story. I would We're re- sitting on like bad Marvel CGI, and the Batman came out this year and it looks fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And who directed that? Matt Reeves. Matt Reeves. <laughs> yep. In, in terms of overall encompassing our discussion here, it's just like, I think that no matter what happens, as long as we as human beings are, are afraid of the dark, as we are afraid of ourselves, as we, we grow and, and, and change and uh, feel different emotions, both good and bad, we are always going to be intrigued by creatures and the monsters because they, in, a, in an essence, reflect our own sense of joy and empowerment and and rage and all these other different things and and they're just that's why they're the most consistent storytelling you know we're we're always going to tell stories of of monsters and and creatures and things that go bump in the night and it's interesting because there's such a universal appeal for monsters that the biggest movies of all time either are about monsters or they have monsters or creatures in them because mm-hmm. jaws is the biggest movie of all time that stands the test of time yes that's the monster movie after that you get jurassic park like that's a monster i'm they're more creatures than monsters i wouldn't say the tyrannosaurus but you know and then like avatar that's more sci-fi dances with wolves but yeah. There's a lot of creatures. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't really call any of the monsters, but a big part of Avatar is the creatures that inhabit Pandora, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, we're we're always intrigued by things that it's it, not even terrifying. Things that are just different. Now you can bring ET into it. Yeah. <laughs> another number one. <laughs> yeah, another number one, and and the movie that that destroyed the thing from getting any box office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just always love. I, I'm a, I, my favorite director of all time is John Carpenter. Um, mm-hmm. His films are the most influential in my own work in terms of storytelling, pace, and stuff like that. And also, I just get a kick out of his 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 <laughs> how he does interviews. I, I just remembered one of the last interview. Well, it was a couple of, like they're doing the kind of anniversary of the thing. And I'm like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Mr. Carpenter, you know, what, what, what do you think about uh, people have rediscovered the thing and it's become a modern day cult classic and this, that, and then he goes, I wish they would have come to the, come to the theater when it came out. I'd have made more money. <laughs> I was just like, yep, don't ever change, John. My favorite thing is when people ask him about the Halloween sequel, like what his favorite things about the Halloween franchise, the sequels yeah. are. And he's always Great like check. the checks. <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> yep. Well, I just, I just love him. And the thing is, is that I'm a big fan, huge fan of the fog, a, a, a stupid nerdy level of it. I have like two Captain Blake figures and, you know, I've met Adrian Barbeau and had her sign <laughs> the fog <laughs> poster. And I just got the 4k steel book of it. I just picked that up too. But, uh, but the thing is, it cracks me up at the beginning of that movie, John Carpenter's one cameo that he actually has a line in from mm-hmm. his movies. Now, granted, he played, you know, corpse and uh, uh, body bags, where it's just himself and no makeup. And he comes in at the beginning talking to Hal Holbrook, and he's like, I'm all done, father. And he's like, all right, thank you, Bennett. And he's like, father, can I get paid? And the father's <laughs> like, come back tomorrow. And I, I think I remember reading an interview where Carpenter's like, I put that in there because I didn't make a dime off of Halloween. So I wanted is <laughs> the only reason he did Halloween too, is because right. Halloween, they didn't make any muff personally didn't make any money off of it. So they did Halloween too because they wanted to get point, you know, get points and stuff. But yeah, I just always loved that. It's just like the thing is, is like Carpenter was, I always felt like Carpenter was well ahead of his time. We just I, I well, I, I and Patrick Ray, uh, the director of They Wait in the Dark we were watching escape from LA mm-hmm. a couple months back and we're like, my God, he, he tapped into something years, years before anything of us came to, came to fruition. I mean, go back and watch that movie and look at Cliff Robertson's president and then think about the previous administration. And you're like, Oh my God, he called it. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was very, very intriguing. Uh, when we when they kind of tap into that zeitgeist well ahead of well ahead of it i mean they live i mean oh, they live yeah. as today as ever but yeah i just i i've always been a huge defender of carpenter even on his lesser films like you know ghosts of mars i love ghosts of mars it's <laughs> cheap you can tell they, they they rip budget away from him at the last minute but and it was originally supposed to be escape from la or escape three i have a soft spot for all carpenter movies I, I I love the man. I like his work. I gotta ask, what is your favorite film by him? I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a limb because most people, <laughs> I mean, there are people who love it, people who hate it. Obviously, the fog is a huge. I love the fog, but honestly, the one I grow to watch over and over and over and over again is Prince of Darkness. Oh, that's such a good movie. I just find that movie so intriguing. The, the visuals and the, the the thought process behind it but that that was that's probably one of my it's it's one of the ones that i would say most recently i've acknowledged the fact that it's one of my favorites that has grown on me halloween is always going to be up there because it was influential on me and it's just it's such a a powerhouse of low budget filmmaking you know yeah. when you watch that you can tell a bunch of kids grabbed a camera and some lights and made a movie and it's, <laughs> it's, it's just great i mean it's just great it's like there's no stars in it jamie lee curtis was a she became a star but she wasn't yeah. a star no man but she was hollywood legacy you know true and, and pleasance was in it but he was like i don't know what these kids are watching yeah it's just one of those movies that just like it was just a bunch of guys that like oh we got enough money to put this this actor guy at you know the star that we know of you know he was blofeld and and <laughs> a james yeah. bond movie now he's in our movie great but as somebody who started off in low budget filmmaking and one of the first movies i i produced as a feature was called exposure and i kind of took the same approach i had been touring around with another movie i did makeup for called helltown and we went mm-hmm. to a convention i went to a film festival and i befriended lynn lowry who was in um david cronenberg shivers was in cat people was in i drink your blood uh, worked with george romero on the crazies Oh, cool. uh, we, we, we hit it off really well. And while we we're in pre or yeah, pre-production on that one, she's like, had reached out to me and she's like, Hey, if you ever, ever have any projects, 
you know, I'd love to work with you. You know, we had a good convert, you know, we had good rapport and all this stuff. And I was like, cool. So when we came to it, it's like, you know what, I'm going to take that, that kind of that Halloween approach and we're going to stick Lynn in this and a few scenes just to kind of help get people interested in watching the movie. And that's what we did. We flew her out for a day and shot some scenes with her and put them throughout the movie. So she was, seemed like she was all throughout the film, which is exactly what they did with Pleasance. <laughs> you know, had him there for a couple of days and shot his, you know, he's not in the movie a whole lot, but they could put Donald Pleasance in John Carpenter's Halloween. And that's what helped to some degree help sell the film. It was just a great film too. But yeah, I, I would have to say, I definitely have to say Prince of Darkness, you know, the thing is fantastic. I think it's, it's, it's his masterpiece in my opinion. It's just simply pure unadulterated perfection in terms of John getting across his, his ideologies and thought processes. You know, again, I love the fog. And honestly, the other one that I would put up there too is um, In the Mouth of Madness. That's such a, I watched it for, I watched that for the first time just oh a few God. weeks ago and I fell it, in love. And it's, it's technically the third part of his unofficial trilogy. He has what he calls the, the apocalypse trilogy, which is The Thing, Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. And they're all heavily, heavily influenced by Lovecraft. The Thing is cosmic horror there's a certain level of cosmic horror to Prince of Darkness. And then quite literally in In the Mouth of Madness, when that movie came out, when I was a kid, everybody was like, oh, Sutter Kane is supposed to be, uh, supposed to be Stephen King. I was like, no, he's supposed to be Lovecraft. Yeah. <laughs> the whole idea is what if Lovecraft, the shit Lovecraft was writing was real. Right. And, and, and he, you know, there's a lot of references, but the thing is though, too, I mean, even Guillermo with the Hellboy stories, there's a lot of Lovecraftian stuff in the Hellboy not comics as well as in his his uh, movies yeah in the mouth of madness i think is probably his his last great movie he made the rest of them are kind of cool but they just didn't quite have the same level of production or the level of um intrigue that the the from that backwards did because what followed after that was you know village of the damned and vampires and in the mouth of madness and the ward and don't get me wrong i enjoy all of them but they're just they're not that same level as he had when he, when, when he um, had done in the mouth of madness. Right. But he is, I feel like he's one of those filmmakers where if you were to ask anyone what their favorite movie of his was, there's not really a wrong answer. Maybe. No, there's not. No, yeah, there's not. Like you could say any of his films. I'd be like, yeah, I get, I see that. I get it. I've yet to find mm -hmm. someone who has the same favorite John Carpenter movie as me though. I'm going to find that this person one day. And it's the, my favorite is the one you you haven't even mentioned yet. <laughs> it's uh, Christine. Yes, I love Christine. Is great. No one and I would like. <laughs> Sorry. Oh no! I mean the thing, and I I mean Christine is wonderful, and from a um, point of view of an adaptation, it mm -hmm. is much like Jurassic Park and what Spielberg did with that. Carpenter improved, in my opinion, improved greatly on the book. Oh no, I I agree. As, by taking, by yeah. taking out the the ghost. And just making the car the thing that possess, slowly possesses Arnie. That that was that was the, one of the best decisions. And don't get, I love that movie. I mean, it, it's it's. And the thing is, is like I'm a huge fan of his scores, and I never liked the Christine score. But here in the last mm -hmm. couple of years, I started listening to it more, and I was just like, his his Christine theme is you know you kind of get uh, forget that he did the score to that because they have a lot of rock and roll music in it because of right. No, but his 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 score, his theme to Christine has really grown on me as one of my favorites. And that's oh, like and we were talking about earlier, where it's like the film changes 
each mm-hmm. time you watch it. <laughs> oh, totally. And, and I think the cool, I think what really triggered it for me was on Halloween night in 2018, I went out to LA to his concert. Um, oh, that's so cool. I got, so I got, that was when how the first, you know, Halloween 2018 came out. So they did that, but they had Christine in the lobby and then hearing him and his son and, and, and uh, uh, his godson play Christine with, you know, guitars and everything like that in live, live setting. I was like, oh my God, I've completely underappreciated the score, this theme. And ever since then, I was just like, oh yeah, this is fastly becoming one of my favorite of his scores. But, I love when that happens, when you don't really care for something at first. And then like years later, it's like one, it becomes one of your favorite things. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because there's stuff and then there but and also on the flip side, there's stuff that I loved growing up and I've rewatched. I'm like, yeah, it's not that great. You know, I think the biggest one that kind of triggered to me was Goonies. Mm, you're going to get I, some haters for that. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I love it, but I've outgrown. It. That's the problem. I get it. It's like I love that movie, but I mean, I loved it when I grew up and I still love it. But my mentality has changed so greatly that I'm like, I don't you know, I don't like it as much as I used to. And that's what I mean. It's like, it's not that I hate the film. It's like, oh God, I'll never watch that again. I'll watch it when it's on. But there was, there was a certain sense of when I was a kid, it's like, oh, I could be one of the Goonies. And now I'm just like, I'm the parent stressing about money. <laughs> oh yeah. I Okay. <laughs> you know, so it's like, I can't get the same joy out of it. It's not that I don't enjoy the film, but I can't get the same joy out of the film that I once did because I totally relate to the, the plight of the parents. You know, the, the thing that they mentioned very briefly, that's, you know, kind of the overall encompassing part of the story. The whole reason the kids are batshit crazy enough to go after this treasure is like, they're trying to help their parents pay for pay their bills. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, and as an adult now who has kids and, you know, two adult kids and three teenagers and I'm paying house and this, and I was like, I totally, I'm totally, I totally get the parents now. I totally, I, 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 I've reached the level where it's like, you kids, you're going to get hurt. Get out. Don't be going in that cellar. Why are you fraternizing with the Fratellis? Go, you know, so it's, it's, it is one of those things where it's like, you know, you grow to reappreciate, you know, reassess things and appreciate, but then you also grow out of the movies that you once really loved in, in the sense of what it made you feel when you first saw it. Not that you, not that, you know, you hate it per se, because I definitely don't hate Goonies. I, I do love that movie very much, but it's it's a much different film at uh, at 41 than it was at uh, 12. I, I got to think if there's any movies like that that I grew up with that don't resonate with me as much. I think one that, you know, I, I'm, I grew up too with the Monster Squad. Now the Monster Squad, I still love. In a, and I, in my feelings for that did not change. And I'll tell you why is because where Goonies is a fun kid adventure, Monster Squad still has that element. It's still a freaking scary movie. Like yeah. it wasn't like, oh, they're vampires and there's monsters. It's fine. It's like, no, these monsters are they didn't they didn't ham up the monsters. The monsters are meant to be terrifying. Um, and I think that's why to me that one still holds resonance with me is because it's like they didn't they didn't undermine the monsters. They made the monsters scary. I still oh, feel yeah. I could still kind of capture my my youthful youthful excitement of going, yeah, I could still go take those kids, take those monsters, take the vampire. Yeah, I could do that. You know, whereas, <laughs> and again, maybe it's because there's no ploy of the of parents other than marital strife in that movie, as opposed to the overarching thing of the Goonies is like they're going to lose their house, you know, and, right. and Monster Squad is just like dad's obsessed with work and, you know, we've got marital problems, 
dot, dot, dot. But when it comes down to it, it's just kids. To me, I think, and then maybe this is why I use the comparison because they get compared a lot. The Goonie kids are just kids, whereas Monster Squad kids are monster monster kids. And no matter how old I get, I'm still those kids. So I really always, I, I feel like always resonate with them. And I had the opportunity a few years back when they were touring for the anniversary, 30th anniversary of it, um, I got to take my three youngest kids to a screening at the Alamo Draft House, in which uh, a few of the actors were there. We got to take pictures and sign stuff. So it was kind of a really fun, beautiful way of bringing the old monster kid to the thing that helped make him a monster kid and bringing his kids who are monster kids to the screening and meeting the kids who helped, helped you know, establish that. So it was, it was really, really fun way of connecting both you know, my youth with my kids' youth and with that, that duality of uh, both experiencing that. Oh, that's awesome. And I honestly think that's the best note to end on. <laughs> yeah, I think that was, that was a good one. Oh, that was Sometimes awesome. Kind of good stuff. No, that was uh, from one monster kid to the other. That was awesome. Um, where can people find you and your monster work? Um, you can find me on Instagram uh, at Monster Maker by Night. Um, you'll see the Jake from Topeka moniker there. Um, that's the best place to keep in uh, keep in line with uh, my effects, the films I'm working on, producing stuff like that. Um, we do currently have a few films that are in film festivals as well as are out for distribution. Um, you can check out I Am Lisa, which is a, um, a revenge werewolf movie. It can be seen on numerous streaming services. And I do believe if you happen to find a VHS or VHS, goodness, a DVD or a Blu-ray copy, I would definitely suggest that because I directed and produced a uh, 50 minute long documentary on the effects and the making of it, which is pretty intriguing. Oh, so cool. I definitely check that out. And then we have They Wait in the Dark, which will be seeing a distribution be coming out early next year. Alchemy of the Spirit is currently in film festivals, and we've got a few more uh, projects coming out um, in 2023. So lots of stuff heading away. Uh, if you're like monsters, I got lots of lots of stuff, lots of intriguing stuff coming up, but definitely uh, check us out there. And um, we're still in the process of getting the website up, but um, monstermakerbynight.com is my website. That's awesome. Everybody should check it out. And this has been a great monster conversation. I think we covered all the bases, vampires, werewolves, Kong, sharks, dinosaurs. They, oh, we didn't go over Godzilla. That's the big one we missed. But <laughs> uh, we, can do, we can do a whole podcast on Godzilla. Yes, yes, we can. The the big G is like, yeah, I, I can't get into it right now or else we'll nope. be here for I, another two hours. <laughs> all I would say, all I will say is that I have about I have about 20 Godzilla figures downstairs on my shelf. So the fact we didn't talk about Godzilla. Now, I will say we, we, we were focusing on the classic, the, the classic early classics and, and, and the more um, monsters of the uh, of, of a different type. You know, we can go much more into, you know, Godzilla if we were ever to do another one. So there we go. An opportunity for me to come back. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Austin. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Thanks again to my friend Jake Jackson for discussing everything monsters with me. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. For this segment of I Know What You Watched Last Week, I only watched one horror film, and it was Barbarian. Finally got to catch that one in theaters, and it is part of a trend of highly original horror films with, like, throwback, almost campy vibes. 
and with an insane twist. I think movies like Malignant, Last Night in Soho, and X all fit this uh, improvised classification. I don't want to say too much about Barbarian because it is delightfully insane and it's best going in not knowing too much, but check it out and see for yourself. You can find the show's social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Would You Die Show. The music featured at the beginning and end of each podcast episode is composed by my friend, Josie Palmer. You can also find the Would You Die YouTube show on the Three Wise Men Media YouTube channel, where you can find professional wrestling, trailer reviews, and much, much more. Also, please rate, share, subscribe, and all that fun stuff to help this podcast continue to grow. I have an exciting announcement. Next week begins the first annual of what I'm calling Slashtober. It's finally the greatest month of the year, and every October I want to dedicate the month to an iconic slasher who left their mark on pop culture. Similar to Jurassic June and how each episode that month I brought in a different guest to talk about Jurassic Park, I'm doing the same thing in October, but with one of the big dogs of horror. The very first villain who gets this honor has to be Michael Myers, the face of Halloween. That's right, this is the month he came home. Until then, I'm Austin Torres. Death is coming to your little town.